0: Madame Sonia, if you should ever meet Count Danilo, let me tell you, he is terrific.
1: What is this? Count Danilo?
0: Now, Madame, this is absolutely between
1: you and me. This Count Danilo is crazy to meet you. But you're such a widow. Uh,
0: Who is this Count Danilo? Me. Who wrote this letter? I.
1: Hello and welcome to season four of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1934 and Eric Dienstreit joins us to discuss the sound recording technology used in films such as The Merry Widow. Come visit ernstcast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hi everyone, we are here with Eric Dancefry. Uh, Eric, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? And what made you want to talk about the sound technology behind that great,
0: great film, The Merry Widow? Well, hi, I'm Eric Deinstry. I teach at Ursinus College outside of Philadelphia, and I am coming onto the show to talk about The Merry Widow because I actually have a lot to say about it. It is one of my favorite Lubitsch films. It's certainly an interesting film in the history of film sound as well, particularly in 1930s and MGM. I forget who it was. It might have been Jose Arroyo who called the film a shallow masterpiece.
1: <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it shallow, but it, I think it's it's less deep than you know the To be or Not to Be of the world. Perhaps I, I, this podcast might not exist without this film, in the sense that you know To Be or Not to Be was my first Ernst Lubitsch film, but I think The Merry Widow was the film where I he became one of my favorite directors. I've probably seen it eight to ten times in the past few years. The film has been a friend, and if anyone here, the audience listening to this ostensibly, has not seen The Merry Widow and is wondering whether to continue listening to the gibberish that I'm saying or to watch The Merry Widow, go and watch The Merry Widow, then come back. One of my hottest takes is that this is my favorite of Ernst Lubitsch's pre-code movies, and I don't mean that as a slight against his other pre-code masterpieces. I've rarely seen a film that's as intoxicated with the possibilities of the medium as happy to be a movie as The Merry Widow. There is so much exuberance and joy for the state of living and singing and loving that uh, my heart is filled up by it. So if you haven't seen it, what the hell are you doing here? Go see it. I I would say as an asterisk to our listeners, this is the first of a two-part episode. The bulk of the episode will be released next week with Tim Brayton, one of Eric's colleagues. We're going to be today focusing on the technical kind of evolution of sound at this era of cinema and using The Merry Widow as a touchstone for that because The Merry Widow, it represents an interesting point in the development of film sound technology. What is that relationship?
0: I guess it would be strange to say Merry Widow comes out in 1934. The film to talk about, if you want to talk about the transition to sound, would make sense to be The Love Parade, Lubitsch's first sound film. But I think in like around 1933, 1934, there was a different transition taking place. If we if we kind of think about the long trajectory of the transition to talking pictures, generally we kind of end the transition in 1932. At that point, the majority of theaters and certainly the majority of studios had adopted sound technology, uh, sound recording technology. And also in 1932, that's when the the Research Council of the Academy fully standardizes optical sound and what that would involve for film prints. So 32 is kind of the marker for like, okay, everyone's on board with sound. But after that, it's about actually transitioning to better quality sound. What sort of gets lost uh, in a lot of these histories is that those first five years, films did not really sound that great compared to how they had sound. I mean, if you imagine going to a big movie palace in the early 20s and you're hearing a live orchestra and a live symphony, what you're hearing is a live concert and it's awesome. And then you get to, say, like 1929, you're listening to the Love Parade. And even in the the best quality sound systems, it's still fairly tinny. The decibel ranges are limited. The frequency ranges are limited. You're getting a lot of noise, a lot of hiss, right? The descriptions of it sounds like someone's frying eggs in the background. You get some distortion, the rattling from the horns at the time. So you needed like a, several horns just to amplify it into theaters. so you're getting some rattling, you're getting some phasing. So these were all problems that were happening. And, And around 1932, okay, so first step, first phase is done. Let's get microphones, let's get loudspeakers, let's get them all set up. And then after 32, there's this interest in trying to, well, can we improve? Can we really get rid of that noise? Can we get rid of that distortion? Can we get better amplification, better decibel levels, better headroom and wider frequency ranges? And so maybe from like 1933 to 1938, that's what uh, the industry is focusing on. And that's what every sound department is focusing on. MGM taking the lead of the major studios in focusing on that. And Mary Widow comes early on in that phase two, I should say of uh, of the transition to sound.
1: I mean the merry widow as far as Lubitsch's career goes represents, you know, a pretty big oral shift, right? Because you have his previous musicals all at Paramount, which were mostly, if I'm not mistaken, dominated by direct recording on set. Uh, you are singing live. There's a. This isn't a Lubitsch film, but one of my favorite images from this era, behind-the-scenes images, is a production still from Love Me Tonight. In, in Leah Jacob's book uh, about film sound rhythm, uh, there's a wonderful wide shot of Maurice and the cameras on him, are surrounded by a live orchestra, and I had assumed until seeing that and reading that 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 was all you know, synced to playback because it's so well recorded, so well filmed. The lighting is beautiful in that scene, but that's live. And so uh, the Merry Widow is. With some very specific exceptions, um, you mentioned in your email to me before recording. Uh, I'm going to Maxim's, which I, I have in big notes here as a point at which we can hear this transition from onset dialogue to sync to playback. So, The Merry Widow is the first film where there is n- virtually no direct recording of musical numbers in Lubitsch's career, at least.
0: Yeah, I think I think most of that's true. I'm always afraid to say like you know the first or or whatever because there's always exceptions. I'm guessing, mm-hmm. but certainly for Lubitsch. This was a shift, and I think it's a shift that happened because this is MGM and not Paramount. But also, I think it's it, it happened after 1933, which was this, I would say, kind of this watershed moment in, in, of all venues, in D.C. There was a big stereo concert that Bell Telephone Laboratories and AT&T and the whole entire telephone group, as they're called, Western Electric, Produced, where they had a live broadcast of the Philadelphia Orchestra conducted by an assistant conductor, and then that was broadcast, or I should say narrowcast, through telephone lines to Constitution Hall in D.C., where Leopold Stokowski, the conductor of Philadelphia Orchestra, was in this case serving as the mixer, uh, raising, lowering the levels. But the concert was basically just three loudspeakers. And, and that's what people in the Constitution Hall heard. And it was kind of a watershed moment because it was an unveiling of a new generation of sound equipment, new microphones, and particularly new loudspeakers. And the microphone shift, I think, had a rather significant impact on how they recorded music in musicals. Typically, what had been the norm were uh, the use of omnidirectional or non-directional condenser microphones where you put up a microphone and it records sound in all directions. And that's great for music because you don't just want to get the source of the sound. You also kind of want to get the room effects, the echo, whatever that happens. If you were to use, say, for instance, like a more contemporary shotgun microphone, you wouldn't necessarily be getting those. So you would be using multiple microphones. But the use of just sort of wider frequency ranges and greater control ended up leading to An interest in a new way of micing and a way of having greater control. If you are recording a live song on a movie set, you are inevitably going to be picking up the buzzing of the lights, the, the hums of the motors. There are a lot of people on the set absorbing that sound. And uh, you're also requiring a lot of sets and costumes and makeup and actors, you're requiring all of that to actually also be produced at the same time. So MGM's decision to start recording songs independently, just in your orchestra stages, where you could have greater control of the sound, you could place microphones wherever you want for not fear of them being seen, you could stage the actor's. Or the singers, I should say, uh, wherever you want to stage them in order for them to have a cleaner vocal track. You have a lot more freedom that way, just as in the 33 concerts, there was a great deal of freedom for how they were able to kind of stage the microphones. I think that was in part one of the changes that was taking place at MGM at that time they had a close relationship with the telephone group. And so they were very interested and would later on take up a lot of their loudspeakers.
1: I'm going to ask a question kind of for the benefit of the audience. What the hell took so long? Why didn't they just do sync to playback in 1928 and get it over with and not deal with the direct recording? What were the technical issues around sync to playback in the early days and what enabled that to become more of a possibility uh, within a few years?
0: Great question. Let's see if I could answer it one way of thinking about it might be that early on conceptually they thought of musical numbers as a recording of a live performance why would you need to play around with editing and you know sync to playback or anything like that if you could just set up the camera and shoot a live performance there's that but i don't think that's the only answer i think there's also a lot of difficulties you know there's synchronization issues you're having to to lip sync you're sort of locked in to the earlier recording. It's something that we still grapple
1: with, right? Tom Hooper's <laughs> direct recording in the modern era too.
0: Maybe a way of thinking about it is not that they hadn't thought of it. It was sort of a long-term goal or it was a goal that they had that they wanted to be able to have this freedom. They just were focused on solving other problems at the time that that was kind of next on the list. We got to get the mobility of the microphone. Let's got to, We have to solve that first. And we got to clean up whatever's going on in in theaters right now with um with all the loudspeaker rattles or whatnot. So it may have just been a matter of getting it down to the list. Generational loss was a real
1: problem where you could record live to a certain tape. But, you know, the kind of process of having to record and then redub it on and mix it was still in a very rough state early on. And so even the act of like sound mixing, you know, you could record two tracks, maybe and then change the levels, but actually kind of temporally disconnecting them uh, recording earlier, it would lower
0: the quality. That's absolutely correct. Every soundtrack had a certain amount of noise And when you added them together, when you layered them, you were raising more and more noise in there. So there was a limit to how much you can do before the noise becomes way too audible. In like 33, 34, maybe maybe a little bit later, you have the introduction of push-pull noise reduction, which could dramatically lower the noise floors on individual soundtracks and allowed post-production teams to begin layering sounds with greater frequency uh, without having to necessarily worry about the eggs frying in the background. So yeah, there was also the issue of generational loss. And certainly if for a number of movies, if you're recording things on disc, you're really not having the same level of freedom to edit it. Like you can't actually like, I mean, you, you cut a disc, that's what they, you record it, but you're not like cutting up a disc. Uh, you would have to re-record it onto a different disc. You're already getting some generational loss there. My thought is that at least just looking at how MGM was talking about things, they saw... Uh, at their studio, Mary Widow, as this turning point for them. And it was promoted as such. I can only
1: speak to Paramount. Apparently, it was actually Lubitsch when he became head of production at Paramount that pushed them to embrace sync to playback. And this was directly after the Mary Widow. So perhaps he was so convinced by his experience with MGM and the Mary Widow that he decided to go, "Okay, we're done with direct
0: recordings. That would make sense. So he brought over that aspects of MGM. I I mean, I think it might also be worth mentioning at this point that Lubitsch, like a lot of good directors, did not seem to struggle necessarily with a new technology. He always seemed to find a way to make it seem like the limitations or the constraints weren't really there. So in a lot of those early musicals that he did at Paramount, there is this sort of back and forth between scenes that are clearly recorded uh, and that are kind of limited in terms of camera mobility uh, and, and actor mobility potentially. And then scenes that are clearly recorded, you know, without sound mixed with music in the background and mixed back and forth so that the film doesn't seem stiff, right? Like he was always good at doing that and even doing that in the middle of musical numbers to kind of unstiffen it. Uh, And Mamoulian was able to do that as well. And you get something a little bit similar with, with The Merry Widow, but it's not so much in terms of the stiffness of recorded sound, but maybe a little bit about the any potential limitations with sync to playback. I mean, sync to playback doesn't feel live, right? Like it does feel a little stiff because, you know, it's like watching a music video. As an example, I've always remembered, um, I think it was the British Office Christmas special where Ricky Gervais' character is singing... His rendition, of if you don't know me by now, and vocally, he's like getting really, really into it. And so like energetic and clearly moving around, but visually, because he's lip syncing to it, he's like barely moving. And it's this contrast, it's hysterical. And I think you can kind of run into that a little bit when you do sync to playback where it's the opposite. You have actors who are singing in sort of like the perfect environment on the recording stage, and then you're seeing them on the sets, move around and act around and dance and whatnot, and yet their singing still sounds perfect. You're not hearing those breaths that you would expect to hear for someone who's like dancing. And so there is that kind of absence of liveness that I think uh, you can kind of pick up on. But in Mary Widow, Lubitsch does a good job of avoiding that. And I think in the number like the I'm going to Maxime's number, it it goes back and forth, right? You have some aspects of that song that's clearly synced to playback. And I mean, when Maurice Chevalier is walking on the street with other people and he's like driving in a car and we don't hear any of that, we just hear his voice, that would be synced to playback. Maybe my
1: favorite moment in the whole film is actually the opening of that number, where I can probably recite it from memory at this point, where it's this scene where Maurice Cantanillo is opposite Sterling Holloway, Mishka, and he's in his apartment in Paris. You know, Maxime's is a brothel, of course. He starts the the famous song, I'm going to Maxime's. He's clearly singing live because there's two false starts, right? He sings, I'm going to Maxine's, and then Mishka interrupts him. And then on his third attempt to start the song before being interrupted by Mishka, it cuts to a closer shot and the previously reverberant sound from the room, which is clearly recorded live, it's distorted. It sounds like it's been mic from like eight feet away. Suddenly it's this perfect sounding and the the orchestra suddenly charges in and the song starts in earnest. Oh, that's Paris city of girls on the wrong track. I'm going to Maxims. But aren't you going to report to the embassy, sir? Tomorrow morning. I'm going to Maxims. I'm going to Maxims, where all the girls are dreams. Each kiss goes on the wine list, and mine is quite a fine list. And to me, that heightens the humor, as if the sheer force of his singing is overpowering the film.
0: <laughs> I like that. I mean, yeah, that cut is, when you're looking for it, that cut is so noticeable. Yes. And, he, and you hear it and you see it. And it is kind of fun because also Chevalier's smile that's just like, yeah, what'd you expect? This is a movie. You know, like he, it's, yeah. it says so much and it's partly what makes him so charismatic. So that number is like a really good example. And also because it's in that number where Jeanette McDonald's, her chambermaid, they do that kind of Lubitschian singing. are you going? What did he say? I think he said Maxine. He's going there, it seems. I've heard that's where a man can. He maybe danced a can can. He did that throughout Monte Carlo. And it's just this fun way of speaking in rhythm with like a little hint of music. And so he does that as well. And that all, I think, was live. And that gives it a little bit of life. So you're not just saying, like, all right, musical number, pre recorded, no energy. It's a way for him to keep the energy up. And that number in particular, he goes back and forth. I go watch it forever. That whole
1: sequence there to me encapsulates everything I love about pre Lubic. You have you have this sweeping camera movement, right, that goes outside Maurice's window. Um, It's that classic Trouble in Paradise shot, although this is probably the fifth time we've seen it now. Uh, Lubic loves this gesture and it seamlessly
0: transitions to a model and then to a matching dolly shot. What's actually involved when you're mapping out a number like this? right? You have a lot of moving parts. You have to know, okay, what's going to be pre-recorded? What's going to be recorded live? How are we going to sync everything up? And then you have the camera movements, you have where the microphones are going to be. It takes a lot. You know, whether or not Lubitsch is an engineer, he certainly thinks like an engineer. And I think that's why he was able to get, I would say, such such an interesting musical out of these various changes that were happening at MGM. But I think it also speaks to what's required. A film like Mary Widow, in order for that to work, in order for the sound to work, you do need an exceptionally competent sound department and sound team. Not that Paramount's wasn't. I mean, Paramount really was, you know, they were solid. But MGM's, I think, was significantly better. They were a bit of a boys club, but really the, the stuff that was going on at MGM at that time, I think, is significant. The Mary Widow was marketed and promoted and was the first film that used what MGM would call broadband recording. And it's unclear what exactly that involved, but it, it was a, a massive increase in frequency range and decibel range on the recordings, which would allow for more flexibility for raising and lowering the volumes. So for instance, Jeanette McDonald at one point is singing behind a door. All the suitors are gathered around and she's singing through that door and she sounds a little bit more distant. Gentlemen. Yes, i yeah. I'll be ready in a moment. Her vocal quality is different, right? I mean, that's an option that Lubitsch had to work with, that he could say, all right, for this, I don't want her to sound like everyone else. I want her to sound different. What are the options we have? Uh, and so the, the sound department at MGM was able to provide that, perhaps even suggested, hey, we can do this. And Lubage is like, great, we're going to put her behind the door and sing something she does uh, similarly
1: in the love parade she has a whole musical number in another room and we're hearing it via the servants
0: yeah and I think for that it was a little bit a more cruder of just sort of lowering the volume mm-hmm. right whereas this there's like a little bit more difference a little bit more detail and perhaps a bit more of that sense of realism there's a little bit more muffling like I think they took out some of the higher frequencies so we would you know as if those wouldn't really make it through the door
1: yeah and another great example of that kind of vocal worldizing is when Maurice sings his reprise to I'm going to Maxims" as he leaves the hotel I'll stay up at Maxim's until the morning beams when I am feeling so good. Be sure I'm out for no good lolo, dodo, juju.
0: Wake up, young man. Please do, come on, don't spare the horses and drive me to Maxim. It is important to, I guess, think about the Merry Widow for MGM was, like a lot of their operettas, was supposed to be a showcase. This is a department that is working exceptionally hard to improve noise, decibel, frequency, really every aspect of the soundtrack. And the operetta became almost the perfect vehicle to showcase these changes, in part because there is that immediate musical reference that we have of the live going to see a live operetta. So the more you can make your musical seem like you're hearing a live concert with the decibel ranges and the frequency ranges and all that sort of stuff, the more you're able to do that, the more impressive it sounds. So these operettas, these I would say there's like a cycle of maybe four or five in the mid thirties that MGM did where they were really trying to get everyone to notice just how impressive their department was and how much more impressive it was compared to other departments. Though other departments were also doing this as well. The same year that Mary Widow came out, Columbia, their sound department, which is run by a guy named John Lividary, They produced Victor Schertzinger's operetta, One Night of Love. That would be the one that ultimately won the, uh, the Oscar for best sound because they did a technique where they were recording the numbers onto high-quality, wide-range discs on phonographs, and then they were able to sort of use those higher-quality recordings to try and get that louder sound and those wider frequency ranges so that generational loss will be lessened. So other studios were also thinking of operettas the same way, and Mary Widow, was like sort of the first. And then the one that comes after that, which ends up being even more impressive for them was a Naughty Marietta, which wasn't Lubitsch, but it was still Jeanette McDonald
1: The Naughty Marietta being a McDonald and Nelson Eddy musical, that seems like a good way to segue into Jeanette McDonald and her relationship to sound recording technology, because it's been a refrain among this podcast that I've gotten a wide variety of different viewpoints on McDonald's vocal stylings. In this household, we are all fans of Jeanette. We love her. But uh, I find that when I show something like The Merry Widow to an audience, which I was lucky enough to do it this year some of the responses i got were well that was great but the singing was hard to take or shrill jennifer flieger and i discussed this in the season premiere of this season love parade as often you know, these reactions seem more born out of the limitations of the recording technology that kind of inhibit jeanette's ability to for her musical voice to be recorded what's the deal with the relationship between jeanette mcdonald's voice and the recording technologies of the early mid-30s
0: I'll say that I'm also a fan of Jeanette McDonald. And I think that she, in general, has been unfairly maligned, as particularly as like a an incompetent singer or someone who sings flat, a bad singer, a weak singer, all those sorts of things, which, whether true or not, I don't think you go watch Mary Widow and think that Marie Chevalier is a better singer than Jeanette <laughs> McDonald in any way. She's hitting the notes. He's not. They're both exceptional at acting through their singing. Jeanette McDonald's character, right, her on-screen character is kind of this stuck up person. And that comes through in the singing. And I think that can shape whether or not we hear what she's, she's singing as like shrill or ultimately, I don't think shrill has a, has a coherent definition anyway. So getting those terms, I don't think necessarily work. And it's also worth pointing out that we're hearing these films now in digital audio. And I don't know if we are getting what they would have heard in theaters with a rather sort of lower high frequency to maybe kind of soften some of her higher, higher notes. Although I think that's also playing a role, but Certainly, there was a louder than a whisper campaign, but quieter than a megaphone campaign about her and about how she couldn't sing and her songs had to be rescued by the MGM sound department, which is, if there is some truth to it, I think it's much more hyperbolic. uh, And I think there's reason to question it. For one, she sounds the same in those Paramount movies she did with Lubitsch. So to say that MGM saved her just doesn't really seem to work because I don't, I'm not hearing much of a difference. A lot of my favorite vocal
1: performances of hers in, in her films it come as early as The Love Parade. I and mean, she sings beautifully in that movie.
0: She, she has a phenomenal voice. So this idea that she sings flat, which gets thrown around, I think it's recycled by people who want to sound like they know what they're talking about, but they don't actually know what they're talking about. But it, it is worth pointing out that this rumor uh, was circulated largely by the MGM sound engineers who, and I'll just preface by saying They are really, really good when it comes to issues of of sound technology, but I do think this is a major blemish on their reputations, particularly one person who was brought on from United Artists named John Hilliard. He was a University of Minnesota physicist, engineer, but because of his associations with Western Electric, Western Electric was like sort of helping to build the United Artists sound team. And they're like, oh, hey, would you like to come out? And so he came out and he was there and he oversaw the recording of Coquette, which is the first film to record Mary Pickford uh, and to hear her voice. He ended up kind of taking credit, being like, I made Mary Pickford sound good. Okay. And then he goes to MGM and he starts reciting similar uh, suggestions that he's the one responsible for making um, Jeanette McDonald sound good, that he had to import a special microphone all the way from Germany. In order to get her to sound good, that she didn't sound good prior to the importation of those microphones. Again, not true if you listen to the Paramount films. Or that he also tells a story later on in his career that one of the one of his colleagues, Bob Sterling, who was also sort of a rather significant person at MGM, went through and I think I think the way he framed it was they took one of her songs and they had to edit in from multiple recordings, like a hundred different edits, just to make her voice sound adequate like something just like absolutely certainly that's a bit of an exaggeration and I don't think would have been necessary Uh, this was on Naughty Marietta and again like you listen to Mary Widow and one of her earlier moments I think Vilia, that song like her first big number she sounds great Mm Mm-hmm. They're not editing her on that one. I don't think they need to edit her on that one. So it's unclear why they were just sort of suddenly spreading these rumors about her. She's the one hitting the notes. Chevalier is the one not hitting the notes.
1: In fact, there's a gag about that, right? When Maurice, supposedly Maurice, chimes in on her performance of Vilia with this beautiful voice, right? He cut, it's actually Sterling Holloway singing and Maurice is like solemnly
0: conducting him. That likes that Cyrano de Bergerac kind of moment.
1: Love love, and my heart is your own.
0: Hilliard tells another story at the premiere at the Chinese theater. It would not be uncommon for sound mixers at that large theater to sit in the back and to kind of play with the levels a little bit during the movie. I think it was a common practice for MGM sound team, certainly at the premiere, to have greater control over the levels Uh, So that if there's like big audience applause, laughter, whatever, if things get quieter because it's a big theater, they can kind of adjust. And they were making adjustments during one of Jeanette McDonald's songs. And as the story goes, Jeanette McDonald marches up to the projection booth and starts yelling at John Hilliard of MGM, basically saying, you know, what have you done? You've You've completely ruined my movie. And then only later, after explaining to her what happened, did she more reasonably realized that they were actually helping her. But again, there's like a lot of these stories that became just the accepted version of history. I question them. I think they're motivated by uh, a bit of sexism, a bit of just not liking Jeanette McDonald. Yeah, I would bring it back to Lubitsch as well. It's interesting to me that in all
1: the Lubitsch biographies I've read, um, Jeanette comes across very well. Apparently she and Lubitsch became very good friends. They stayed friends for the rest of his life. Lubitsch and Maurice's friendship apparently kind of fell apart. And
0: by the time of the Merry Widow, they were no longer on great terms. As a historian of Hollywood, uh, sound engineers and mixers and editors or whatever, there is often that kind of sexism that's kind of built into their profession. And I think, unfortunately, this is there. But again, if if she were so terrible, Lubitsch would not have worked with her so many times. Lubitsch would have found someone else, someone who could sing, someone who was easier to work with, you know, if this was true. So that's another reason why I just don't buy it.
1: This is, I think, a good point to talk about the way that the sound technology maybe accommodated singers outside of a certain tonal range and how that may be later contracted. As you lay out in your article, uh, Under the Standard, uh, MGM, AT&T, and the Academy's Regulation of Power. Jennifer Flieger and I discussed the kind of relationship between singing styles and recording technology, like, you know, the rise of crooning, right? And how that happened in tandem with a certain limitations of recording technology in the early to mid 20th century. Early film sound had a very limited dynamic range, right? The range in the tones it was able and the volume levels it was able to reproduce. Obviously, technology progressed. And by 34, 35, you entered a period where you had some great strides made in the number of octaves and the volume range you could both record and play back. A lot of that was pushed by the the Electrical Research Products Incorporated, ERPI, ERPI. And your paper lays out a pretty sordid story of hubris and downfall that eventually led to the institution of the very restrictive Academy Mono standard. Am I completely off base with my understanding of that? And please feel free to go to town on all this.
0: I don't think you're off base or maybe to make it more dramatic, you are so off base. I'm going to have to, re- you know, uh, no, that was great. The transition to, to sound in those early years that was a step backward for sound quality in theaters. You went from this live, powerful symphony sound in, in the bigger theaters to this sort of puny, distorted, noisy sound, right? So like, obviously that's not good. So there were a lot of attempts to fix it. You get noise reduction, you get better microphones. The big improvement occurred with the the bigger loudspeakers. I had talked a bit about uh, the 1933 stereo concerts that at and and Bell Telephone and all them, uh, and Western Electric all kind of produced in 33. And then they kind of, there were like a series of concerts that were in 33 and 34. And they were showcasing a type of loudspeaker that was able to reproduce a much wider frequency range and a much wider decibel range. It it was a more powerful sound. And MGM would immediately take this design, repackage it, finesse it a bit, and then put it out there as what they would call the the Shearer two-way horn or the Shearer horn, named after Douglas Shearer, who was the head of uh, MGM Sound Department and was also Norma Shearer's brother. And I think that's also how he got the job initially, that he, he did this. Or there's th- there's also this other thing he did where early on he experimented with trying to get a radio broadcast b- before the transition to sound, trying to get a radio broadcast to sync with a live film showing so that the sound would come in from the radio. It was called radio cinema. It didn't take off, but I think that was impressive enough that it can kind of get on his resume. So he became head of sound and they rolled out the Shearer speakers. The Western Electric's Hollywood office, IRPE, had their own set of speakers. RCA had their own set of speakers. And these were wide range speakers. They were big, powerful sounds. That meant that you can have someone like Jeanette McDonald singing at a loud volume and at, at, at a high octave range in theaters without it immediately sounding terrible, right? She could actually sound good in theaters as a result of this. Because you've heard this where like, your singers get too loud, they get too high, you suddenly get that distortion. So this was a way to try and minimize that. The the drawback of these speakers is that, you know, even though they're able to do great stuff, they, they really only fit in larger theaters. So these like these big older movie palaces are finally able to, in some ways, return to the high-quality sound that they were able to offer audiences well before the transition, and they would sound impressive, but they don't really fit in smaller theaters. Smaller theaters aren't going to invest in them. You know, you could basically deafen people in a smaller theater if you were to install these sorts of horns. Uh, And if you're keeping them at a low volume, there's really no need to, because again, you don't have to amplify quite as much. So you ended up having for lack of a better word, like two classes of theaters. You had the theaters with the really, really high-end sound systems and you have the theaters with just sort of older, lower, low-end sound systems. Uh, and if you're a studio like MGM and you're making an operetta, do you set your acoustical levels for the larger theaters or do you set your acoustical levels for the smaller theaters? And what they started to do... Uh, and they did this with Naughty Marietta. And they may have done this earlier. Other studios started doing this as well, Is they were basically releasing films on two print classes. Class A would be for the big theaters. Class B would have an adjusted acoustical range so that it would still sound good if played in the smaller theaters. So you ended up having two standards. And it wasn't even standard because this wasn't even standard practice. But you you end up having this sort of strange sort of set. And you can imagine that it's more costly. There's more engineering involved and there's more labor involved. So it's not ideal. And Naughty Marietta, I think, was the first big one to do this, where they had Class A prints and Class B prints. And again, this was part of the continuation. If Mary Widow was where MGM was showcasing their new recording technologies, like what they called the broadband recording technologies. Naughty Marietta is really what they are trying to showcase their theater technologies. And it wasn't just Naughty Marietta. There was like a bunch of films then. There was The Great Ziegfeld. There was Romeo and Juliet. There was San Francisco. As you mentioned in the article, what happens when the wrong prints are sent to the wrong theaters? What happens when a print Designed to play in the small theater, plays in the big theater, or vice versa. Well, it wouldn't sound as good. It would sound less impressive. As it turns out, there were a series of legal troubles, a series of court cases involving Western Electric's Hollywood arm, Burpee, deliberately overseeing the sending of wrong prints to theaters that had non-Western Electric sound systems as a kind of, for like what kind of extortion being like, hey, you know, it's a shame that your film sounds so bad. If you installed our system, you wouldn't have to deal with this issue. Something to that effect. And a lot of that was also because Erp had started off in the 30s as being like the leader in theater technology. And as the decade went on, more and more people went to the RCA systems or they went to computing systems. So Erp was kind of struggling. So what you ended up having was a way to kind of end this, you know, this two-print system, to end this, you know, extortion system or extortion practices. <laughs> I should say it wasn't really a system. Those were just a sense of like bad practices. The way to solve it was to have one standard. And it was on on one hand kind of limiting because it basically kind of brought down, again for lack of a better word, kind of took the average between the good the good theater and the bad theater and it brought it down to the middle. So there's like, okay, here's one standard. So you're not getting quite as wide as you could have. Uh, but you're also sort of allowing for much wider than other theaters were, were, were getting. And that was sort of the standardization of the acoustical setting, nicknamed Academy Mono or the Academy Curve. I think later on it would be known as the Academy Curve more frequently, but it was the Academy Mono. And that kind of put the kibosh on things. And if I were to take a guess, I would say that that also may be why that sort of operetta singing style that was very trendy and really popular for much of the 30s, would kind of go away, would be replaced, especially at MGM, with the more Broadway vocal style that you would get from the Freed unit and people like, you know, Judy Garland and whatnot, like, you know, jazz, pop music. There's always more than one reason. But um, McDonald's disappearance, I think, was part of that.
1: So everyone is kind of limited to a much more kind of humble vocal range, I guess.
0: I I guess you still had the freedom to go to go higher, but it was about like at what volume and and at what intensity. And if that's where you're going to be hanging out, like if that's where you are vocally in that range, I think you're maybe going to get hit a little bit harder. That doesn't mean you don't have those types of singers later on, but they've been minimized. And it's worth noting that this particular limitation that you had in 37 and 38, when it was rolled out, it kind of stays there in place until the 70s so you have about 40 years worth of of this particular setting in place
1: like this rhymes with a lot of other technological quote unquote innovations in hollywood where what is sold as you know i mean you mentioned in the paper that academy motto is sold as having the utmost sound quality, right? When there's actually other reasons and priorities. It does remind me of, you know, the history of aspect ratios, for example, and film stock and film color, where so many of the turning points in history are purely economic and political concerns. The kind of intra industry politics. The widescreen was sold as epic, big because it was difficult to display on televisions, right? Properly. And, you know, academy ratio came came about because of technical limitations related to sound. And that's why the aspect ratios changed from 133 in the late silent era to 119 in the very early sound era to finally settle on 137 and around 1932 33 you know it's not that 137 is a better ratio than 119 it's because it allowed the cinemas that had been outfitted for silent films to play these new films more easily film history is riddled with moments like this where you know in this case 40 years of sound films were kind of hamstrung a little it seems
0: it is worth i guess maybe nuancing a a bit that it's not as though films suddenly sounded worse like in some ways films because there was a standard now in place that everyone was able to work with, that you could start developing various different types of equalization techniques around this particular standard. So films could still actually sound really good, you know, with it in place. But the reason for the standard was not solely to make films sound better. And yeah, everything you're saying that every tech innovation or, or, or just new technology or new system in general is not simply to make things better. In fact, there are a lot of systems that can make things significantly better that get passed over or rejected. There has to be some other value to the people in power in the industry, that this will help them, you know, maintain their power. This will help them sort of spend fewer resources. Like there are so many other benefits that have to be there for a new technology to be considered or adopted or, or, or taken up. And this is another example of that, that you have these problems in the 1930s, and you have all these solutions that are being put forward by different sound departments, MGM being one of them, or or even by RCA and some of these independent uh, sort of the tech servicing industry. And the studios through the Academy ultimately arrive at one that may not have necessarily been the best solution, but it was the best for them. And at the expense of, say, you know, certain types of soundtrack affordances.
1: It's, I mean, similar to the adoption of sound, right, where certain farmers were left by the wayside despite their immense talents. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. I'm going to put your article in the show notes. Um, I would invite our listeners, if you've made it this far on the show, you can probably spend the time to read the 24 pages of it. It's It's really brisk, well-written stuff. It's just an incredible look into the decision-making process at Hollywood on a technical level. Even if you aren't terribly interested in the intricacies of the frequency response curves of film sound
0: or whatever, I think it's of interest on a political level. I do have a book coming out. Maybe you should keep your eyes open for a book if you like this discussion of sound technology. I have a book on the history of film stereo that starts in the 1930s and moves forward that might be of interest. Editors note here,
1: that book is called Making Stereo Fit, The History of a Disquieting Film Technology. If you're listening to this now, it will have been released about two or three weeks ago. There is a link in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for donating the time to this podcast. I mean, this was terrifically interesting. Uh, My favorite episodes are the ones where I feel hopelessly out of my depth and I learn things. And this was one of those. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Devin. I appreciate it. Next week for our season finale, Tim Brayton joins us to discuss The Merry Widow. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It? is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples.